You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Thank you, Lindsay. Good morning. Well, um, if you're new, uh, welcome. My name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. Uh, I uh, have been gone since the end of May on sabbatical, and this is my first uh, Sunday back, and just want you to know, church, that I have missed you, and I miss being here with you. And thank you. Um, I'm coming back from the time away uh, convinced of a few things. I'm convinced that um, it is an honor to pastor the people of God. It's a sweet joy to get to hold the office of pastor in the church of God. It's a greater honor uh, to be a member of the family of God. It's the highest honor to be loved by God in Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning and loving you and loving me. And it's a joy uh, to gather here. We're, We're here to hear from him and to receive grace from him. Jesus is both the head and the hero of Citizens Church. And I'm happy to be back in a place where he's worshiped and adored. I also wanna say that it it remains my dream, if God will let me, and if you will have me, it remains my dream to pastor here for a really long time, or at least as long as Bleeker is here. Um, (laughs) There's also a special group of people in the room this morning, uh, and here's who you are. Last year, you were in fifth grade. And this year, you're going into sixth grade, and that means that, yeah, that you are in the room with us. If you're here, would you just raise your hand? Okay. We're glad you're here. Uh, At Citizens Church, sixth grade uh, marks a, a time of change where you're no longer in our elementary ministry, but you're moving into our wonderful middle school ministry. And it also means that instead of being in Kid City, Uh, on a Sunday morning, you're here in what I called when I was your age, Big Church, and what I call at my age, Big Church. And so welcome (laughs) to Big Church. Uh, Here's what you need to know, uh, sixth grader. Uh, We love you. Your church loves you. You're not some future version of the church, and all of your value here is in the future. You are a present part of our family of faith, and we are just excited to have you in here with us. Here's my promise to you as uh, the guy who preaches on a Sunday morning most here. I promise to point us to Jesus. I promise to point you to Jesus, and I'm going to do my best to not be super boring while I do that. Uh, We're in Psalm 23 this morning. Uh, We have been in the Psalms in the month of July. This will be our last week in the Psalms, and from there we will uh, turn to other things. But Psalm 23 is amazing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know this psalm? Are you familiar with this psalm? Um, Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest preachers and theologians in Christian history. That's my opinion. Uh, But in 1866, he preached Psalm 23, and he started the sermon with this line. First, First sentence of his sermon. I cannot say anything new about this text. 
And I feel that this morning because I'm sure most of the room, you have heard the lines that I just recited at least once before, or at least some of them. Maybe many of you have some of that psalm or all of that psalm committed to memory. Maybe you've heard sermons before about that psalm. Maybe you've read books about that psalm. It's, it's really familiar. It, it might be some of the most familiar scripture in all of the Bible. And that's true. It's familiar both inside Christian life and outside Christian life. I, I was uh, talking to one of my kids this week, and a child of mine asked me, Dad, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, Psalm 23. And he or she uh, immediately started singing the lines of a song. He, he sang this, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. And it's a song written by a theologian named Coolio. And in that song, it has lines of Psalm 23 in it. Now, is that the first thing I want to come to his mind when he thinks of Psalm 23? No. Was I proud of him for knowing that song? Of course, it's a great, it's a great song. We should all know it. I was already, though, in that moment, like literally in that moment, I was thinking of the familiarity of this psalm, and that just confirmed for me that these words that God inspired David to write thousands of years ago, they have gone out far and wide. They're known by Christians and non-Christians. They're known by uh, us, likely known by you. They're known by Bible readers, churchgoers, songwriters, all of that. What I wonder, though, and maybe you felt this a bit if, if you're paying attention when we read the psalm, when Lindsay read it, when I read it, um, I, I wonder if, as familiar as this psalm is in its content, how familiar is it to you in your experience? Um, like... This psalm describes a certain kind of relationship with God. Is the relationship with God that it describes, is that familiar to you? Is, is this the kind of relationship that you'd say that you have with God? Let me, let me tease that out. Um, when we read him say, I shall not want, uh, it doesn't mean I don't have any desires. Uh, we all have a heart filled with a mix of desires. Many of those desires God has placed in our hearts. So it's not the absence of wanting. What it means is uh, I have no lack of the things I most need in life. I lack nothing. And so what that's pointing to is a life that is so filled with satisfied trust in God in a world which is our world that is always striving for more, always feeling like what I have is not enough and what I have I'm afraid to lose and what I want is really scarce. The psalmist says what everyone else is desperately looking for, I already have found in God. And I'm content with what I have in Him. Is that familiar to you? The I shall not want. Um, look, that feels a bit foreign to me. There are lots of phrases that could describe my heart. I wish content in the Lord was one of them, or at least more often, at least. How about verse four when he says, I will fear no evil. The word evil means danger. The idea is I am not afraid of the bad things that could happen to me, and I am not afraid of the bad things that may already be happening to me. Could you say that? I'll fear no evil. I'll fear no danger. Um, mid, middle of sabbatical, so probably about four weeks ago, uh, one night uh, I woke up at like 1 a.m., and I just woke up scared. I don't know how else to describe it. It was, it was somewhat inexplicable. I woke up and fear had just settled on me. And it wasn't really uh, aimed at anything. It wasn't like I was worried that someone was going to break into the house or something. We have a guard dog. Uh, he's a golden doodle who's scared of the mailman. 
And so I have this irrational confidence that he would protect us in that, in that instance. So I, I just woke up scared and I didn't, have, I didn't have words for it. I went, got up, checked on the kids. I walked the home. I prayed. I told the dog he was doing a good job. And then I, I got back in bed. I got back in bed still afraid. And I fell back asleep maybe around five o'clock. I didn't experience a lot of fear, no evil. And there was, I didn't experience fear, no evil. And there was nothing dangerous or threatening even happening. I wasn't in the valley of the shadow of death. I was just in the middle of Plano. <laughs> you ever have a night like that? Are most of your nights like that in this season? We all have some sort of relationship to fear. And, and, and for some of us, you know, it's, it's legitimate, really painful, really dangerous things that we're afraid of. For others of us, it's the kind of scare that's aimed at nothing. We're just scared. Could you say, friend, with sincerity, I will fear no danger? Or the image we get in verse 5, my cup overflows. I really like the King James translation. It says, my cup runneth over. And it means life is so abundant. There's so much joy in Jesus that not only do I have enough for me, but I'm pouring out. And if you need some, I have plenty to spare. And if people ask, how are you doing? You say, I'm incredible. And you actually mean it. You're not just saying it to end the conversation. You actually mean I'm doing really well. And we just don't hear that a lot. I don't hear that a lot. I don't feel that a lot. Many of us feel like maybe life demands more from us than what we have to give. And we wouldn't say, my cup runneth over. We'd say something like, my cup feeleth empty or something like that, right? Or maybe you'd say, I'm about three-fourths full, but it could just tip over at any time, you know? I shall not want, I will not fear, my cup overflows. These are the phrases we find in this really familiar psalm. These are words that describe what it's like, or at least what it can be like to be in relationship with God. And I just have a sense that if I ask, hey, who's familiar with this psalm? Hands go up all over the room. If I ask, how many would say this psalm perfectly describes your relationship with God? That's a lot less hands. Are you with me? Um, here's what we need to know. Um, even if that's true, I, I uh, recited this psalm over sabbatical. I, I thought about it a lot. I uh, committed it to memory. I didn't have it memorized, and so I memorized it over sabbatical. And uh, I found myself relating to this psalm in a certain way. I found myself relating to the psalm only through the lens of what's not true about my relationship with God. And here's what I believe. I don't think that's what that psalm is intended to lead us into. Uh, it is not. God didn't preserve this psalm in his word to simply show us how awful we're doing. <laughs> It doesn't read like that. It's actually invitational. It brings a level of peace just in its own content. John Piper says about the psalm, it embodies the life it describes. Like just to read it is to enter its world. It is not a psalm that puts you in your place and leaves you discouraged. It's a psalm that takes you by the hand to lead you into this beautiful relationship with God. And that's what I hope for this morning. I hope that God's word would lead us into more of this kind of life. Uh, these things won't perfectly describe our relationship with God until Jesus comes back. But by God's grace, these kinds of realities, I shall not want, I shall not fear, my cup runs over. Maybe they could make their way into our hearts this morning and maybe they could gain more and more ground over time. I want to name a few things that Psalm 23 wants to lead us to. First, it wants to take us by the hand and lead us to seek God, to see him for who he is to believe the metaphors that are offered about him and to allow those to challenge the images that maybe come to our mind when we think of God. And it does that by describing God with two different metaphors. It calls God a shepherd and it calls God a host. Look at verse one with me. The Lord is my shepherd. That word Lord, uh, would you look down again? Is it capitalized in your Bible? Yeah, 
okay? Um, that is the covenant name of God. Usually when that's in the Bible, if it's the covenant name of God, you'll see it. Every single letter of Lord is capitalized. It's the word, uh, the name that was first spoken to Moses in the book of Exodus. It's used over 4,000 times in the Old Testament, and it means this. It's a definition of God. It speaks to God's divine, eternal, self-sufficient nature, and it just means I am who I am. I came across a definition uh, from a 19th century Methodist theologian named Adam Clark, and he offers a definition for God that really helps unpack all that's tied up in that name, Lord. It's long. It is worth our time. He says this, the Lord is the eternal, independent, and self-existent being, the being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity. I had to look up so many words. (laughs) Illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence and indescribable in his essence, known fully only by himself because infinite mind can only be comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just and right and kind. That's our God. This is the Lord. And the psalm says, that God, infinitely perfect, eternally self-sufficient, cannot err, can only do what is just right and kind, that God, you know what he's like? He's a shepherd. Shepherd was a low-class role in the ancient Near East. Uh, It was no one's dream job to be a shepherd. It required somebody to literally leave their home and live with the sheep to condescend to be among the animals, guide them, feed them, sleep outside with them, protect them. So would you feel the shock of this contrast? The Lord, infinitely perfect, eternally self-sufficient, cannot err, can only do what is just right and kind, indescribable, glorious. The Lord, our God, is my shepherd. He's your shepherd. He has condescended to be near us. It's deeply personal. It describes a God who wants to be close to his people, a God who wants to walk among his people. And then it just gets even more personal and more intimate as the verses unfold. What does this shepherd do? He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. What's the first thing this shepherd does? What does he lead us to? Rest. The Lord is my shepherd. He runs the flock into the ground. No. The Lord is my shepherd. He keeps the best fields for all the sheep he loves more than me. No. The Lord is my shepherd and he can't see when I'm tired. The Lord is my shepherd. He doesn't care when I get thirsty. No. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in the best grass. He leads me to where the waters are drinkable. Do you know this God? Do you know this God? Uh, He's a rest first God. (laughs) That's the pattern of creation. Adam and Eve are born into a world and the very first day of their life was rest day. It was a rest first world. When someone asks you, what kind of plans does God have for your life? Have you ever answered he plans for me to rest? It's the kind of God he is. There are a lot of great answers to that question. He plans for me to use my gifts. He plans for me to share my faith. He plans for me to be a part of his church. 
Those are all great. So often, though, buried in the list of good answers is the Lord is like a shepherd who plans rest for those who he leads, including you. It goes on. He restores my soul. His concern for me is deeper than just physical concern. So often, I'm only concerned with physical concern. God loves me better than I even love and care for myself. He is concerned for the immaterial part of me, my soul, my inner life. And so it says he restores my soul. He can see what's happening in the hidden places of my heart. And, you know, uh, some say that the, the idea of he restores my soul, it's a reference to salvation. He forgives my sin and he makes me new. Others say it's a reference to God bringing peace to our life when we're depressed or discouraged. Do you know which one it is? God does both. He's that kind of God. We see throughout Scripture God doing that kind of thing in the life of his people. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So he not only teaches me right from wrong, but this is wisdom language. It's living in God's world, God's way language. He is a present guide for me in life. He's a moment-by-moment voice of wisdom and justice and goodness. The Lord is my shepherd. He's infinitely perfect. He's eternally self-sufficient. He leads me. He guides me. He delights in being close to me to give me rest and restoration and wisdom. That's the first metaphor. It's the most well-known. The title above Psalm 23 in your Bible is probably the Lord is my shepherd. But there's a second metaphor. In verse 5, it changes. It says, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It presents God no longer as a shepherd, but as a host. And the idea is God's throwing a party. He's prepared a banquet, a feast, and he's a hospitable God. You've probably been in situations that you remember where you haven't been hosted very well. You can think of some. You probably know of situations where you've gone to someone's house or you've gone to some sort of elaborate dinner and you have been hosted in such a way where you don't, you don't even necessarily know it or wouldn't put words to it like this, but what you've experienced is someone's gift of hospitality. And you feel seen by that. And what has happened is somebody is able to create an environment around a table where some of the best things in life are enhanced by their hospitality. Uh, Some of you have that gift in this room. You have the gift of hospitality. You're a good host. And and you need to hear this. Be encouraged because you're like God in that way. Here it says about God. Here's what he does. You prepare. God does the work. You anoint. Uh, Oil was precious. It was a sign of blessing and prosperity. My cup overflows. It was, uh, wine was a sign of celebration and and joy. So the Psalm says, the Lord, infinite, all-knowing, perfectly pure, eternally self-sufficient, He's prepared a feast for me. And he saved saved me a seat. And he saved you a seat. And he shared his oil and his wine out of his abundance. By the way, Olinan, this is the meaning of my cup overflows. It is not about what I have or even how I feel. It is not about what I have. It's about what God has. It means God has more and more and more of everything that I need. The guest doesn't possess it. The host does. Listen, friends, and I think about times in my life when my cup feels empty or half full. It is often because I am trying to get at other tables what's only served at God's. I leave his table looking for acceptance that only comes from him. I leave his table looking for peace that only comes from him. I leave his table looking to atone for sins that his bread and his cup would remind me are already paid for. So here's what's happening. The psalm would take you by the hand and lead you to a field where there's a shepherd, loving, guiding, protecting, close to the sheep. And the psalm points and says, you know what that reminds me of? Reminds me of who God is to me. 
and would take you by the hand to a dinner in a living room. There's a feast where the host has set out chairs and provided food and keeps the cups flowing and full. And everyone around the table is seen by the host and welcomed his family. And the psalm points and says, you know who that host reminds me of? It reminds me of who God is to me. And here's my question. Is this what you think about when you think about God? Are these the images that come to mind when you think about God? A good shepherd who wants to lead and offer rest, restoration, wisdom, a generous host who made sure that there's a place at the table for you. I just believe that so much of the challenge to live the life of I shall not want and I shall not fear and my cup runs over is because when I think about God, I so, I so often don't think about him like this. And if I'm wrong about him, I'm going to be wrong about everything else. And I'm not talking about the theological answers that we know to give. That's very important. Is God holy? Yes. Is God a trinity? Yes. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Yes. Is the Bible the word of God? Yes. Did God make everything? Yes. All that's important. We cannot rightly love a God that we think wrongly about. But maybe some of us agree with the answers the Bible gives about who God is, but then we struggle to believe the metaphors the Bible offers about who God is to us. And maybe our thoughts sound haunted by completely different images. If we wrote verse 1 with honesty and sincerity, we'd say something like, the Lord is my taskmaster. I can never do enough to please him. The Lord is my hypercritical judge. He keeps a record of all my wrongs. The Lord is my absent father. He's never there when I really need him. And these are different images than the one we get in the psalm. And what the psalm wants to do is take you by the hand and take me by the hand and say, no, good shepherd, generous host, so that those images might challenge the false ones. They might bring clarity to the distorted ones. Do you see God this way? There's another place the psalm wants to take us by the hand and lead us to. It wants to lead us into, to put it simply, prayer. A kind of relationship with God where I talk to him, not just about him. Verses 1 through 3, it's third-person language. If, if you looked with me at your Bible and you looked at Psalm 23 and you just paid attention to what tense it's in, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, that's third person, makes me lie down. He, third person, leads me beside still waters. He, third person, leads me in paths of righteousness for his third person's sake. And then when does it change? What verse? It's the number that comes right after three. Perfect. In verse 4, it changes to what? Second person, you. Your rod, your staff. He's saying all these true things about God, but it's not enough for him to have this third person relationship with God. It turns second person and he starts saying these true things to God. I've asked this question about my life before. I'm asking it again and I invite you to ask it about yourself. Do I talk more about God than I talk to God? One of the foundational truths in our next-gen ministry, our preschoolers learn it this way. God wants to what? talk with us. The God who is a good shepherd, generous host, he delights in hearing from us. It's an essential part of any relationship. And there's something that changes in a relationship when you say to someone versus when you say things about someone. If you were asking me, Jamin, what do you love about your wife? And I could tell you, I love how thoughtful she is about our family's needs. Um, I love how eager she is to learn. She is a humble learner. She's wise in that way. Um, I love how uh, she doesn't even pretend to laugh at my dad jokes. That's good for me to, to know that they're not funny and just give up. Um, I love her eyes. I love her laugh. I love our story together. 
I love our 15 years together and everything tied up in that. And so you ask, Jamin, what do you love about your wife? And I say all that to you. And then you say, have you said that to her lately? Does she know that? Like, when's the last time you said those things to her? What if you called her right now and said those things? What if I looked at her right now in the service and said all those things to her? Part of her would really hate that, actually, if I did that. But that's different, right? Saying it to her is different than saying it about her. Saying it about her is true. Saying it to her is true and personal. It does something different in the relationship. It does something different in my heart and in her heart. And something like that is true in our relationship with God. Hear the difference. Uh, God is good. God, you're good to me. God is merciful. God, you've shown me mercy. God is love. God, you love me. It's different. Um, is that part of your life with God? I wonder. I wonder if some of us are living entire Christian lives where our God conversation is almost entirely third person. Talk to him. Say it to him. I wonder what would happen in our hearts collectively if we committed to never say anything about God that we haven't first said to him in prayer. Okay, Jamin, what if I'm having a hard time believing any of those things? Like, what if it's hard to make that personal because it doesn't feel personally true or my experience makes that just difficult to believe? What if those things are hard to say with confidence? And what would be more honest is to say, God is good. God, it seems like you're better to everyone else, but not to me. Uh, God is merciful. God, I have sinned away all mercy and there's none left for me. God is love. God, you can't possibly love me. And maybe those kinds of words feel more honest. Okay, Say that. Say that to God. I can't say that. That's all my doubt and my fear and my unbelief. It doesn't even sound Christian. Well, I don't know. If God is the absent father or the hypercritical judge, then you can't say those kinds of things to him. It's not safe. But if he's the good shepherd and if he's the generous host, then we can come to him with honest prayers and trust him that he's going to respond with encouragement, correction, restoration, and none of those things or beliefs. We'll get any better by us avoiding God. And then hear this, the same heart, the same heart that wrote, you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me, also wrote, how long, O Lord, will you forsake me and hide your face from me? It seems that the good shepherd, the generous host, can handle those kinds of honest prayers, all kinds of honest prayers. Talk to him, not just about him, the life without lack the life of confidence in the face of danger, the life of cup running over, the path on that life is filled with honor, honest conversations with the God that we trust. The psalm wants to lead us somewhere else. It wants to lead us to love the good shepherd, not just the green pastures. I read this week, Psalm 23 has 55 Hebrew words in it. Um, it's a poem. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just classic Hebrew poetry and all of its complexity and beauty. And so here's how those 55 words flow. 26 Hebrew words, one phrase, followed by 26 Hebrew words. And it's designed that way. The numerical center of the poem is what the prayer most wants to emphasize, right? It's almost like the hinge upon which everything else swings. And so it's what one commentator called the beating heart of Psalm 23. You know what the phrase is? For you are with me. 26 words, 
for you are with me. 26 words. And when we get this phrase, where are we? We're not in the green pastures anymore. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The numerical center, the beating heart of the psalm, you're with me. So the psalm is not out of touch with reality. Oh, this is so important, especially if you're new to Christianity or new to church and you have this picture of Christianity where everyone kind of fakes a smile and it's like this empty optimism and this hyper-emotionalism and everyone seems to act like they're doing okay and nobody really talks about how painful life can be. That's not what you find here. It's not out of touch with you. It's not just green pastures and still waters and joyful dinners. Right at the heart, it's the valley of the shadow of death, meaning it doesn't just describe a life of birthdays and good days and parties and happy homes. It also includes a life of pain and funerals and divorces and cancer and tragedy. It's green grass and parched earth. That's life, isn't it? We all, to some degree, know both the green pasture and the dark valley. And what's maybe most astounding about the psalm is the way it invites us to relate to God in each circumstance. Um, Who gets the credit for the green pasture? He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. God gets the credit for the good in his life. Who led him there? God did. How often do we believe that we are the authors of all the good in our life and we only remember that God is writing the story when the pastures turn into valleys? Then, so God gets credit for the green pasture. Then he wants God's comfort in the valley. That's the heart. God, you are with me. He wants God's presence. When life is difficult, we all either have suffered, are suffering, or will suffer. When life is hard, we will pursue the presence of something or someone to help us endure. A few nights ago, um, our youngest woke me up in the middle of the night. She's five. And she came into our room, and and she woke me up in a real subtle way by poking me in the eye. (laughs) She's crying. At that point, I'm crying. I said, Ayla, what's wrong? She's sweet. She is as sweet as they come. She said, Dad, I had a bad dream about clowns. And then her eyes get real serious, and she goes, and you know how much I hate clowns. (laughs) And I said, honey, I'm sorry. Are you okay? And I said, you should go back to sleep. And she said, her one request, Dad, can I please just stay in here with you? It's so simple. It's so simple. There's a simplicity to what she wanted in that moment. She wanted a presence that she felt safe with. She didn't say, Dad, I, know, I mean, I know it's 3 a.m. Would you help me understand how irrational my fear is? She didn't say, Dad, can you give me four or five of your best points on how clowns can be a good thing in my life? <laughs> um, she didn't say, Dad, can you promise me that I'll never have a bad dream again? She wasn't after that. She wanted to be with someone whose presence helped her believe that everything would be okay. What's the valley of the shadow of death? I don't know. We don't don't get a lot of details. It doesn't sound good. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. We don't know how long he's there. We don't know what all he loses while he's there, but we do know what he has, the comforting presence of God. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. That's what his confidence is in. It's like a daughter who tells a dad, it's enough if I can just stay where you are. 
It describes someone who does not just love the green pastures, but someone who loves the good shepherd. And even when the pastures turn into valleys, the desire of the heart is not mostly to get back what I no longer have, but to be near to the one who I can never lose. You are with me, God. Friend, he is with you. Uh, maybe you'd say, I'm, I'm kind of in like a besides still waters season in life. Maybe you'd say, I'm more of a valley of the shadow of death season of life. God is with you. He's with you. He's present with you. The testimony of the saints throughout Christian history is that when God was all I had, he was all I needed. There's one final place this psalm wants to lead us. It's the most important of all. Um, would you do something with me? Would you just assume a posture of prayer? Bow your head, close your eyes. Maybe you'd even open up your hands out in front of you as a physical sign of your spiritual need to receive from God. Uh, I'm not asking us to, to check out at this point. Um, just hoping we can focus our attention. The last place that Psalm 23 would take us by the hand and lead us is to Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the generous host. All of redemptive history looks forward to the day where we feast with our risen Lord and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, 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 and we can talk to God because he's made a way for us to be made right with God. And we know that he's present in the valley because he went to the valley himself. Jesus, is, his own cross cast the shadow of death. And he willingly went there so he knows what it's like. Uh, listen, th there is something happening in my head and heart now where I feel the pastoral need to be explicit about the gospel of Jesus. The good shepherd presented in Psalm 23, the generous host that we see, that is only available to those who belong to Jesus. It is only available to those who've repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. He is only a good shepherd. He is only a generous host to those who belong to his son, covered in the blood, whose hope is in the empty tomb and resurrection. But for those of us who belong to Christ, to those of us who have had our sins forgiven, to those of us who uh, have our hope in him, as ever, however messy that might be, the starting place to a life of no lack and a life of no fear and an overflowing cup, the starting place is coming to our crucified, risen Savior. Would you do something? Would you take a moment right where you are to just talk to him? Not about him, talk to him. And trust that whatever your heart caught, if anything at all in the last 35 minutes, that you can turn that into prayer and his ears are open and his eyes are on you. Would you just talk to him? Maybe it's saying something super honest, like, God, I need help believing that you are who your word says you are. Maybe you'd resonate with what a 
sister and friend told me after the nine o'clock service, my life is crumbling. And you don't have words for prayers in a crumbling life. Could you just ask God to comfort you with his presence? Lord, we love you. (laughs) Jesus, you are our shepherd. You make us lie down in green pastures. You, Jesus, lead us beside still waters. You restore our soul. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. You've conquered the valley. You've come out the other side, and all of our enemies flee at your resurrection power. You prepare a table before us. There's a day coming where we feast with you, Jesus. Everything sad, untrue, every tear wiped away. You anoint our head with oil, our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue us in this life. And our worst case scenario is that we will get to dwell in the house of our beautiful God forever and ever. We love you. Amen.